Well, it's so good to be together to worship on this Lord's Day. It's so good to be singing those songs. Those were excellent songs to uh, really prepare us, I think, for the Word of God from Isaiah 53. As we would continue our exposition of that chapter, I'd invite you to turn there in your Bibles. Isaiah 53. This has been a very uh, rich study for me. I think I'm beginning to understand in some minute, small way what it means to um, understand and to know Christ in the fellowship of His suffering. Trying to enter in and to understand more and more of, of, of the, as the prophet would, would verse after verse use these massive words that carry a whole lot of implications uh, with them. I'm understanding a little bit more of what Christ has done on my behalf. I still have a whole lot to learn, but I'm understanding a little bit. I'd like to just take a moment and review, as has been my custom, uh, just a couple minutes from what we looked at last time. And last time we looked at uh, verse 6, Isaiah 53 and verse 6. And we noticed that that is really the gospel is completely summarized in verse 6 alone. If you're looking for one verse to go and to witness to people... Isaiah 53, verse 6, is one of these verses that could be used. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. So very briefly, we noticed that we were, were sinners by nature. That's our corporate condition in Adam. We, when Adam sinned, we sinned. And we inherited that. He was our federal head. He was our representative, if you will. And when he sinned, we sinned. Guilty, vile, helpless we. That sweet communion that took place between the Father and, and, and man in the Garden of Eden was then broken forever. It would never be the same. We had gone astray, not just aimlessly, but actually away from God very much away from God. That is our nature, our sin nature. And then also we notice that not only are we guilty in Adam, but we're also guilty individually. Because the prophet goes on and says, each of us has turned to his own way. So individually we've turned to an evil, dark, crooked way. Not only by nature, but by practice. Guilty. Guilty. And so, this desperate, lost condition of all of mankind, it, this is where God intervened. This is where God um, take, took our iniquity and He struck the substitute in our stead. This is something that God has done. It's not anything that we could ever manufacture in a million years, but this is something that God has done. He took the prerogative. He had the solution in striking the substitute, which was God's Son. And then, from really Genesis 3.15, the promise of the Savior, all the way to the book of Revelation, is the history and explains how God has purposed to reconcile to Himself His chosen people. John Calvin said, In ourselves we are scattered like sheep, but in Christ we are gathered. We're gathered together. Or to think of it like this, when Adam, what Adam lost for his race, Christ has restored 
for his chosen race. So moving on to verse 7, tonight we're going to be looking at this in some detail. Um, Again, some of the words that are used are some of the most powerful words in all the Bible. And I hope to open that up a little bit here as, as, as these words that are used to describe the intenseness the grievousness of the, the sufferings of our Savior. And there's really two important themes that I want you to see tonight, two main ideas in our text. And the first is the, the grievous nature of the sufferings of Christ. Okay, that's, that's kind of been an ongoing theme, right? But, but some of these words, there's some new words here, or at least one new word that has a lot of impact. But then secondly, what Christ's disposition was in the face of those sufferings, namely, that he did not open his mouth. He did not give any self-defense. He willingly went and endured it all. And we're going to look at that in some detail, how he, he, he had that patience and that meekness um, about him. So, let's read the text, uh, Isaiah 53 and verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. And yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he did not open his mouth. So the title of the message is The Amazing Patience of Jehovah's Servant in the Face of Severe Sufferings. So our first point this evening is Jehovah's Servant is oppressed and afflicted. Again, Isaiah is continuing with these descriptive terms of the grievousness of the suffering of our Savior. And so first of all, we see the details of his suffering. And he uses two words here. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Now, why is he speaking in the past tense? I mentioned this several weeks ago. He's prophesying 700 years before Christ. It should be future tense, right? But it's past tense. Verses 2 to 10 is what we would call prophetic perfect. When the prophet speaks, he speaks as though it has already taken place. And so that's why it's in the past tense. Much like Romans chapter 8 where it says that those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. It is as good as done. God has said it. It will happen. And so here, as it's in the past tense, it's because of the surety that it would come to pass. So first of all, he says that he was oppressed. Now this word means to exact or to exert a demanding pressure. Though the root carries the idea of an oppressive pressure of payment by labor. It can also mean hard pressed by an enemy or treated harshly. You might be thinking of the early chapters of Exodus as Israel was there in bondage in Egypt, right? And they're crying out because the cruel taskmasters forcing them to work as slaves. That's the same word, that they were oppressed. God's people was oppressed and beaten down. That's the same word. That's the idea. Those slaves in Egypt under the rigors of... um, of the Egyptian taskmasters, the pressures, that sore bondage, the heavy yoke that was placed upon them. And this is where they cried out, asking for a deliverer. And that's when Moses is raised up. So the idea of our suffering 
servant being oppressed like that, being oppressed for the payment of labor. And next he says that he was afflicted. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. And that word means to humble or to mishandle, to afflict um, an individual. It can also mean by imprisonment or by bonds. And it's, this is actually the same word that occurred at the end of verse 4 that we looked at in some detail some weeks ago. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. It's the same word. The idea of being severely humbled. And, and this is true of our Savior's life. And his enemies thought no insult was too low for him. He was spot upon. He was, he was stripped naked. The worst of indignities were placed upon him during his earthly life. And yet, yet, he took it all humbly. Consider during his earthly ministry how his name and his honor was constantly being blasphemed by the wicked around him. Yea, even by the religious rulers blaspheming him. He must have a devil right and his soul heaped and laden with these spiritual horrors and troubles as it was mounting up closer and closer to the day at Golgotha when he would endure the wrath of God to the point in the garden he says he began to be very distressed and troubled knowing what was coming well look how also very much implied here is how Christ's obedience here is both exemplified and magnified. His obedience to his Father's will. Isaiah is making very clear his obedience and suffering to the point of death. And this is what we read in Philippians chapter 2, right? He became obedient when? To the point, to the point of death. I should say how. All the way to death. Not to the garden, not to almost to the cross, all the way to death. He paid it all. And this is an important concept to grasp. You see, if his death was not voluntary, he would not have been regarded as satisfying our disobedience. His death had to be voluntary. If he's forced and hands tied with nothing he can do, anybody could be sacrificed like that. This was a voluntary sacrifice on his behalf. Paul says in Romans chapter 5, For as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many are made righteous. Our servant exposed to severe and intense and grievous suffering. And yet he bore it with an entire resignation that he would pay it all. That he would take it all upon him with uncomplaining patience. Consider, well, turn over to Isaiah chapter 50 and verse 4. This is the fourth or the third servant song. What we're looking at is the, the fourth servant song. But he says in Isaiah, in, in verse, verses 4 to 6, speaking of Christ, the Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not disobedient nor did I turn back. 
I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out my beard and I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. Very clearly, he was not disobedient. He did not turn back. He did not even cover his face at all to shield the, the spit wads that were coming at him. He endured it all. A complete resignation to do the Father's will, to please Him in every respect. That was His purpose. That's what He came for. His meat and His, his, his drink was to do the Father's will. He did not even use any of the means within his own power to escape the horrible treatment that he was enduring and yet the impending danger that awaited on the cross. But rather, when the suffering came, even in the most terrible forms, where the natural, the natural instance would be to turn back and to run, that's what you and I would do. He resolves with entire readiness to submit to whatever the Father has for him in the perfect plan of salvation. Well, having looked at some of the details of his sufferings, his, his obedience in that, notice that Isaiah says that he was led like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before his shearers. Now this word lamb in the third phrase there is the word that's commonly used for sacrifice, the lamb that would be sacrificed. There's different words for lamb and sheep in, in the Bible, but this is the one that speaks directly to what would be offered as a sacrifice in the Pentateuch. And yet he uttered no complaint. He suffered himself to be led quietly along to death. Albert Barnes in his commentary on Isaiah says this, we can almost hear the meek and patient Redeemer being led along without resistance. And amidst the clamor of the multitude that were assembled with various feelings to put him to death, he himself perfectly silent and composed. Perfectly silent and composed. You see, man's salvation is not some type of amnesty. There's a lot of talk about that. But it is an actual redemption that is wrought by God. The throne of grace does not rest on the ruins of the throne of righteousness. Or to put it another way, God does not extend His mercy while compromising His majestic holiness. He can't do that. Divine justice had to be satisfied. It had to be satisfied. God can just not look the other way and say, well, I'll ignore that sin. It has to be punished because He is holy and just and righteous. His nature demands it. And that's why the suffering substitute was there in our stead. That's why it was necessary for Him to come. And what is the result? Is that sinners can be freely justified having to contribute nothing to their salvation whatsoever because Christ has done it all. He has paid it all. He was our substitute. Well, having looked at how Christ was oppressed and afflicted, was led to the slaughter in humility now, let us consider our second point, that the Lamb of God demonstrated an incredible patience and meekness. And here we're going to have some pointed application 
Uh, Peter uses this uh, to apply to us in his first letter. And uh, there's going to be some very clear application for the first time, really, in this section. So first of all, notice that the Lamb of God was silent, it says here. Now this doesn't mean universally silent. We know that he spoke. We have several words recorded in Scripture, right? But it's the idea that he, he was silent in giving a defense for himself, to defend himself. He would silently endure the abuse, the mock trials, the false witnesses that were lined up that came to testify against him. Matthew, it says in Matthew 27, And while he was being accused by the chief priests and the elders, he did not answer. And then Pilate said to him, Do you hear how many things they testify against you? He did not answer them with regard to even a single charge. And I never noticed this phrase here. And it says, So the governor was quite amazed. We would be amazed too. Wouldn't you be amazed? You've heard so much fame about this man that is healing and and declaring that he can forgive sins and now here he is before the officials of the day. He remains silent. The governor is amazed. But his reason for his silence before Pilate You see, it wasn't that he didn't have a defense to offer. He could have very well offered a defense. But having taken our guilt upon himself, he submitted to what was coming to him. The sentence that was declared to him, he silently submitted to it. And it also mentions, speaking of Herod, he silent before him and Luke, and he questioned him at some length, but he answered him nothing. He would go willingly to death, as it says in Philippians. Also, John chapter 10, it says, Christ says, no one takes his life. He can lay it down and he can, he can raise it up. No one's going to take his life from him. But very clearly here, it says he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before his shears. How is a lamb led to slaughter? There's probably a line of them. The butchers are in there sharpening their knives. This would be quite a homeschool field trip, I think, to go witness this. Sharpening the knives. The lambs are led through the corrals, you know, that weave around and finally into the slaughterhouse there. And and now I've never seen this. I'm assuming this is (laughs) roughly how it happens. But there's no scene of of a lamb digging in its heels. He has no idea what is about to happen. Now there's a big difference here. When it says, like a lamb that is led to slaughter, he was humble, he was willing, completely like that lamb. But the lamb knew nothing of what was about to happen. Christ knew everything that was about to happen to him. There's a big difference at Trader Joe's while doing some shopping I thought you know I like the different foods they have I bought a leg of lamb once and I thought that leg was attached to a lamb that just weeks before had no idea that his legs were going to be cut up and sold in the supermarket and that's the idea but Christ the big difference here is that Christ knew exactly what was coming every step of his earthly ministry was a step closer 
and closer and closer to the cross, closer and closer to enduring God's just wrath against sin. He knew what was coming, and yet he was humble. He was patient, meek in the midst of that. Make no mistake that his silence was not due to some lack of power to overthrow his enemies or to rescue himself. He most certainly could have, but he chose not to. Now, by contrast, he most certainly did speak. We have several of his words recorded in Scripture. This is not saying a silence altogether, as I said, but it's a silence with regards to complaints or or to protest to the ill treatment that he was receiving. Consider that he said, this cup that the Father has for me, this cup that the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? He most certainly shall. And even in the midst of the the thickest trouble in the garden or on the cross, he never says, Father, save me from this hour. He never says that. Those are words that are not recorded in Scripture. But rather, words like, Father, Glorify your name. Even in the garden, he says, If it possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as thy will. Thomas Matton, the Puritan, says, Christ did not open his mouth unless to pray, instruct, or reprove. And think about his words. That's pretty much what we have um, recorded in Scripture. John Brown, in his excellent commentary on this chapter, he says this, If he did not complain, if he did complain, it was not of the violence of the Jews, right? That's what we would think that he would complain about, the harsh treatment, but it was of their unbelief. That's what he complained about. It was not of the treatment of his person, but of their rejection to his message. It was not of the injury done to him physically, but the injury that would be coming to themselves. The compassion, the love of Christ, that's what he complained about. Their unbelief, their hardness of heart, it grieved him so much. But yet he patiently endured all that came to him. Christ went to the cross of Calvary, Calvary to secure our redemption. He went willingly, eager to secure it, to satisfy the Father's will. He submitted himself to the will of wicked men with no restraint, no argument whatsoever, no answer, no cursing, none of that, not even a cry of pain do we have recorded in Holy Scripture, but rather a full calm, a patient constitution as he would go forward in meekness, self-control, self-composure. That's how he went. Silently. Quoting Albert Barnes one more time, he says that he did not use the language of reviling when he was reviled, nor return upon people the evils which they were inflicting on him, How strikingly and literally was this fulfilled in the life of our Lord Jesus. It would seem as almost as if it had been written after he lived and was a history rather than a prophecy. Now that last phrase struck me. 
that's exact. Now, you know, we know there's countless prophecies that were fulfilled in the coming of Christ. But this particular prophecy here, four Gospels expound what it really means. And every, there's not a word that contradicts in those Gospels, but yet fits into here. It almost seems as though this was written in the second century or something, after he had lived, but it was 700 years before. So he was silent, self-composure, willingly going, while being reviled, did not revile in return. Now, contrast that to the, the taskmasters, or the Israel under the taskmasters. Remember what it says in the early chapters of Exodus. They sighed, they groaned, they complained under all that oppression that they were receiving. But the same oppression was on Christ and not one complaint. And now I want to give some obvious application. John Flavel gives this description of Christian patience. He says, Christian patience or the grace of patience is an ability or power to suffer hard and heavy things according to the will of God. Christian patience or the grace of patience is the ability or power to suffer hard and heavy things according to the will of God. And you see, brothers and sisters, this power comes from God. It comes from God Himself. In Colossians, Paul writes, strengthened with all power, according to His glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. Strengthened with all of His power. And each of us have different trials. Each of us have different burdens that we bear or that we have borne in the past, right? Some are heavier than others. Some are very light. Some go through their whole pilgrimage with very, a very little affliction in their life while others are weighed down very heavy. Some last for different durations, uh, hours, months, years, a lifetime for some. There's varying durations, varying, varying uh, heaviness in our trials. Some it's external only, perhaps bodily affliction, but their mind is sharp and keen and they've never been prone to depression at all. Others suffer spiritually and internal and have a depression and an agony and a doubting. And some have both, physical and internal. But consider Christ. His soul was burdened deeply and He had those full senses and He knew well what the bitterness but what the bitterness would be of the wrath of God that he was about to pay. Christ's patience was, was full of submission, of a peace and a serenity that is completely unsurpassed and full compliance to the Father's will, perfectly calm, no discontents, no grumblings, no murmuring, like the children of Israel. Never did that enter his heart, but rather he had that perfect patience that patience that James describes in the opening chapter of his letter. And how could Christ have this perfect patience? Obviously, it's a result of his perfect holiness, his, his wisdom, his foreknowledge, faith, his heavenly mindedness, and his obedience to his Father's will. So how do we obtain that patience? Well, we ought to strive to be that as much as we can, depending on him. <clears throat> Excuse me. This morning we heard of and were exhorted to follow 
The example of Christ and his servanthood from John chapter 13. Tonight, I'd like to exhort you to follow the example of Christ in all of your trials and your suffering. And this is going to be very, very brief. We could spend a couple weeks on this. But uh, and turn over to Peter chapter 1. Peter gives us, a, if you will, a New Testament commentary on Isaiah 53. In chapter 2, beginning in verse 21, and I'm going to read 21 to 23. We looked at this uh, a few weeks back as he was quoting uh, verse 5 or paraphrasing that. First Peter 2, 21. And you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example an example to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Very clearly, in verse 21, now Peter is writing to those who are suffering intense trials, intense difficulties, persecution, And he says, you've been called for this purpose since Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps. So this is not optional. You are clearly told to follow his example by Peter. And I confess to you, this is extremely difficult for me. It is hard to implement these things into your life and to have some measure of success. But we must strive to and we can have a measure of success if we rely on the power of God and we live our lives to glorify Him, we have here set before us a pattern. So much of the time it's easier for us to apply things if we have a pattern. Well, there's a pattern here set before us, and it is a perfect pattern. I'd like to give you a, um, a few thoughts, considerations from John Flavel once again. And these are considerations. You may want to write these down. That, 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 you, that you should consider in, in your trials and your difficulties in this life. There's six of them that you should consider as you encounter various trials and tribulations in your life. And first, he says, look upwards. Look upwards. Look up to your sovereign Lord God who has sent the trial upon you and consider that. The psalmist says, be still and know that I am God. Secondly, look downward. Look downward. Some can think that they're in the worst of cases. There's nobody worse than me. Woe is me. I'm in the worst condition. But if you open your eyes and look, you will find others who are being afflicted far worse than what you're going through. Much more difficulty than what you're currently going through. And so consider that. That there are many who are being afflicted both body and soul and being weighed down far, far worse than you. Thirdly, look inward. Look inward and beware of having discontentment in your heart. Beware of a proud heart. Beware of pride which will drag you down. And look for these things because God will send trials upon you to humble you from these things. As you allow discontentment, as you allow pride to raise its ugly head in your heart. And that's why Peter, in chapter 1 of that epistle, can say, If need be, you have been distressed by various trials. 
Why is it if you need be? Because you might need some humbling. And so God will send trials. Upward, downward, inward, and then look outward. There are always many eyes upon you in the workplace, your neighbors, in school, however you want to apply it. There are many eyes upon you. And the wicked really enjoy to see you in turmoil. Those who are not in Christ, they get some morbid gratification with, over the fact that you are in some trouble. So do not dishonor Christ in such situations, but consider Christ and how he endured what he went through here before us. Fifthly, look backward. Look backward. See if there's anything behind you to quiet the impatient spirit that you feel raging inside. And what do I mean by looking backward? I think what Swabel means is to look at those past deliverances that God has been so faithful to you in the past. Even if not in your own life, in the lives of others, in the lives of family members, how they have been mightily delivered and this should bring you encouragement to endure what God has. And then finally, look forward. Look forward. The end of their duration is very soon. It will come to an end in God's perfect plan. It may be an hour. It may be hours. It may be weeks. It may be months. But there will be an end. It may be in glory. It may be when you pass from this life. But there will come an end. Peter says in chapter 5 of his epistle, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace will perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Also, Paul in 2 Corinthians could call it momentary light afflictions. Momentary light affliction on the scale of eternity. It's a feather. And that's how you have to look at it. That has to be your perspective. You must keep the pilgrimage mentality as you go through this life. So may God in His mercy help us to remember to strive to be like Christ in all of our sufferings. So very quickly, some concluding applications. We've considered the grievous suffering of Christ again, how He was oppressed and afflicted, and the incredible patience of Christ, that meek and patient spirit, and how Peter tells us we are to follow in His steps. It's a very clear application. We're exhorted to this patience, this meekness, to follow the example of Christ, to imitate His submissiveness and exercising patience. Also consider that for believers to cheerfully bear the trials that the Father sends you, that in some way you can have fellowship with the sufferings of Christ in the midst of your trial, in the midst of your suffering. And this is proof that you're a true Christian, that you are a child of God. That's, that's the touchstone by which it, it shines that you're a genuine, born-again Christian, that God would send these and that you would look upon Him and that you would endure it and that you would have a fellowship of the sufferings of Christ. And brothers and sisters, because Christ was silent on your behalf, you have a plea before the throne, the judgment throne. You have a plea. You have something to say on the judgment day that Christ is my plea. Christ has put away all of my sin. He is my plea and my trust and my hope is in Him. 
in Him alone. Because He was silent, you now, as a child of God, have that confession in the day of judgment. Is that your plea tonight? Is that your plea? I hope that it is. If you've not trusted Christ, today is the day of salvation, the Bible tells us. Don't wait. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for this wonderful prophecy. Thank you for Isaiah, the message that you gave him, and these servant songs speaking of Christ. Lord, we have heard once again, and in added detail, the grievous sufferings of Christ. He was oppressed. He was afflicted on our behalf. Lord, we are humbled at your great love for unworthy sinners. We are amazed at that. And then further, how Christ has bore this with patience. How he endured it all. How he did not shrink back. Oh Lord, in some small way, may we, may we mirror that in our walks, in our lives. That we might be bright shining lights of what a Christian ought to be. Even a Christian under sore trials and afflictions. Bearing up because our hope is not in this life or the things of this world, but it's in another life, in the things of heaven. Oh Lord, increase our love and our desire to be with you. We long to see you face to face. And Lord, we thank you that we have the wonderful privilege to partake of the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, which is just a foretaste of that. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.